Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Lucy Worsley, interviewed by broadcaster Natasha Knight, live at the 2023 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with one of the UK's most celebrated historians. Hello, uh, welcome to the hallowed halls or marquee here um, at the Swan Hotel for for this wonderful, wonderful talk. Uh, We're ending things on a high, as Vaz mentioned, with the woman to my right, celebrated historian Lucy Worsley. I'm Natasha Knight, as Vaz mentioned. I'm a radio broadcaster and I look after things over at Magic Radio and I look after their book club as their head bookworm, which was a self-appointed title at the time. Um, It means I have the pleasure of reading a lot of books and interrogating authors too. Uh, Today we are talking about a titan of the murder mystery genre, the one and only Agatha Christie. And Lucy's biography on that subject is absolutely brilliant, telling the story of her long, complicated and deeply misunderstood life. And I'll admit, I wasn't necessarily the most clued up on all things Agatha before I started reading this book. Um, Safe to say, I've been completely enlightened. You've brought to life the folklore that surrounds all of Agatha Christie's life uh, that it has really morphed into over over the years. And we come to find her in the book as a deeply human, contradictory, and captivating woman of her time. And I was thinking about why this book is particularly interesting and absorbing, and I came up with some reasons why, and I don't know why I'm kind of doing your job for you, Lucy, but we'll get into (laughs) it in a second. Um, Naturally, get an insight into all the chapters of Agatha's life. You also get to re-engage with some of her works, and I've already been picking up a fair few copies of some of her previous 80-plus pieces. But the third thing that was most important to me was that I now have a really decent understanding of... um, domestically available poison, so thank you so much for that. Uh, Lucy really is the best person for the job, and you're going to hear why in just a second. Uh, Of course, she's a historian, author, BBC presenter, and curator, and today's discussion is going to delve into Agatha, hopefully, if we have time, covering themes of gender, class, wealth, motherhood, truth, and empathy as well. So... Lucy, over to you. Um, Firstly, why Agatha? I mean, it goes without saying she is the bread and butter of why so many people are here today, but why did you choose her for your latest work? Well, thank you, Natasha, for your generous introduction, and it's so nice to be here. And I have to say, the attraction to Agatha Christie for me was her reputation, as I see it, as a slightly difficult woman, a woman who is not easy to get on with, something a bit prickly, something a bit private about her. Can't think why that appealed to me, (laughs) but it did. And I also felt that my attention was tickled by this statement that you hear very often in connection with her sales. The, The only people who have outsold Agatha Christie in history, goes the factoid, are... um, Shakespeare in the Bible, yeah. right? And I, I, it, it, it constantly amazes me that um, the only people who've outsold Agatha Christie are Shakespeare and God, and then there's her, and she's a woman, you know? She seems like part of the wallpaper of our lives somehow. And I think people overlook the fact that she achieved that in a world that was then made by men. Hmm. Uh, but why now? Why You must have a history wish list as long as my arm. So why now did you choose to pick Agatha? Well, there's a whole world, and I feel like some of these people are probably here in the room today, of people who are really into the life and the works of Agatha Christie. Yeah. And I would say that maybe 30 years ago, that was a bit of an... I don't want to say outsider thing to do, but in terms of the academic establishment, you wouldn't have found her on the university syllabus. There's been this very sort of long-standing snobbery Mm. about the work of Agatha Christie. A lot of great writers of the 20th century have positioned themselves as upmarket, by contrast to her as downmarket, middlebrow, commercial, and what we mean by this is female, right? (laughs) Uh, And yet now if you go to study English literature at university. 
it's likely that she's going to be on the syllabus, you know. People yeah. are taking her seriously as a great writer, if you like, because the canon of great writers is expanding. More people are allowed to be in the canon of great writers than used to be. Mm. So I feel like she deserves to retake her place. Uh, the biography chronicles Agatha's life from literal inception to her actually quite gentle demise in the 1970s. Those early years at Ashfield... Can you paint us a picture? And, you know, some people might know Agatha's life in depth, but it'd be lovely to catch everyone up. So those early years at Ashfield, you know, in Devon, what kind of impact did the family values have on how she took on the world in later life? Can you just paint us a picture? Certainly. She was born in Torquay in Devon on the south coast in what was then a very genteel upmarket kind of uh, resort for the, for the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And she came from a family of inherited wealth. And I think it's significant, actually, that her father was an expatriate American. Because mm. I think that she had a real outsider perspective on Britain and its class structures that was kind of baked in from the beginning uh, because of that. So she lived in a lovely house. There were servants. There was food. Lots of food. The earliest of her... <laughs> So I've been to the Christie archive and had the privilege of reading all yeah. of her letters. And the earliest letter that survives is to her dad. And it's very characteristic. It says, um, Jane, the cook, uh, let me help her in the kitchen today. I had Devonshire cream for tea. Now, one of the things I like about Agatha Christie is her enormous appetite for <laughs> pleasure, including food, including cream. And she loved cream so much that in later life, when she had a great success, she didn't toast it with a glass of champagne. She had a glass of cream instead. <laughs> anyway, it was a blissful childhood, basically, yeah. until, as you're probably going to move on to... Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, on to the, the unfortunate wiggling of their financial situation. So, yeah. uh, and yeah. appearance was everything. So what happened to them? Her father was feckless. He didn't know the value of money. And this is something that will cover Agatha Christie's whole life, really. I don't mm. think she really understood the value of money. And uh, the family finances kind of dribbled away. And the worry of this caused her much-loved father um, to get ill. Uh, he, he suffered a series of heart attacks. And when she was 11, he died. Mm. And so two losses, the loss of a... Three losses, really. The loss of a father, a loss of the fortune, the loss of this happy home in which she'd been growing up. And from this point onwards, uh, poor young Agatha, um, I think she really changed. She began to suffer from an ex a succession of upsetting psychological experiences. These nightmares she had. Each night she'd have a nightmare. What did you call it? What, what were they called? It was a very specific character who came up in the it? nightmare. And um, uh, he was called the gun man. And the way the nightmare worked was that she'd be with her mum, who was still alive. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd be happy, they'd be playing, they'd be doing normal domestic things. And her mother would suddenly change into this man with cold blue eyes and a gun instead of a hand. And I think this is really important because it shows that there was this sort of darkness to Agatha's own mm. character. It shows that she could fall into a state of what I think today a doctor might describe as depression at certain points mm -hmm. of trauma. And thirdly, I think it, it's really important for her fiction because in so many of her stories, there's somebody who seems like a mother, somebody trusted, a friend, a companion, but somebody who can suddenly flip into somebody with the propensity for murder, <laughs> which leads me to think, who are you sitting next to? <laughs> right at this very moment. Because believe me, if this were an Agatha Christie novel, this, this tent full of people, the murderer mm. would be one of us. <laughs> In Agatha Christie, it's always one of us. That's brilliant. Well, that darkness is always neatly packaged in cosier settings. And we can talk a bit more about that and how she was marketed, because I think that is really, really interesting. Um, and you do paint this quite frenetic time where her father and mother are trying to figure out their financials before his untimely demise. But that leads on to Agatha's debutante years, these absolutely fundamental years to package her off 
and send her out into the world and hopefully bag herself a husband or three. So can you just talk to me a little bit about that experience with her mum going out there on a bit of a shoestring budget, as you say, and what she went out to see and how that might have altered her confidence or view on the world and how men also perceived her? It's mm. a big question. So we'll start with, start with mum and daughter. Certainly, certainly. Um, Agatha's destiny was to get married, okay, to a man who would look after her like a kind of a little pet, I suppose, and her destiny would be to have children and to run the household and that sort of thing. Mm. And that sort of shaped so much about her, her values. But then it all went wrong for her because of the loss of the fortune. And the family started to slide down the social scale a bit. Yeah. But even so, her mom still thought the thing to do is to get Agatha married. Um, but they didn't have the money by then to give her a debutante season in London. So they went for the cut price version, which was in... Uh, Cairo. Package holiday. Package holiday. And the reason that this worked was because there were a lot of um, British expatriates there because of the army. People were serving in the army there. So in Cairo, she and her mum went off and spent three months there and uh, she had to go to four dances a week with the army officers. You know, it's serious business, husband hunting. You've got to put the hours in. And uh, she was pretty successful at this. She got some, she actually got nine proposals over the next <laughs> it's few incredible. years. And people laugh and find that funny because I think a lot of people have in their minds the picture of her as a really wrinkly old lady, mm -hmm. somebody who does not appear to be ever young, dynamic, sex sexy. sexy, sexy. But she, she was, and she was very physically confident as well. Loved things like roller skating and surfing, surprisingly, driving too fast. I think you wouldn't want to meet her on the roads. I can imagine, actually, her online dating profile now would be, I think, quite alluring for the modern, uh, the modern man. Um, could you... So there's one particular denial of a proposal, because obviously I always think, how would I react to having nine proposals, let alone one? Any takers. Um, <laughs> but she does quite tactfully, obviously, have to deny these wonderful bachelors that have come to or, her. Or not so tactfully. Or not actually. so tactfully. <laughs> so, yeah, what did, she, what did she say in response? I, th I think she got quite bored of turning them down. <laughs> and there's one, one she wrote to one young man, and she said, no, I'm not going to marry you. And really, look, we've only known each other for 10 days. It's an awfully silly thing to go and propose to a girl like that. It's <laughs> quite nice. I think that's still pretty nice, considering. Um, and just in terms then of what I was just saying before about did that impact her confidence quite significantly? Where do you think that, uh, what, what role do you think that had to play in kind of taking little steps towards a creative, uh, creative vocation? Because that really was the inception of her as a, as a budding writer. Well, she was lucky enough that she had role models in her family as, as writers, but this was not writing... Mm, so much as a profession, but writing as a hobby, sure. if you like. Her mother wrote poetry, and her older sister, Madge, in fact, was a published writer. She'd written some very witty short stories that had been published in, in magazines. Mm. So Agatha went down that road. She enjoyed it. She thought she was good at it. But she, uh, she would quite often sort of belittle the art of writing as a craft. Mm. She would say, to me, it's just something like painting flowers or embroidering cushions. So a very you know, feminise it. Or? Yes, a feminine conception of it, which is uh, one thing. But I also sort of feel that was in some ways camouflage mm -hmm. for what she definitely felt was a calling. I mean, mm -hmm. there are times in her life when she went on these writing binges where she would just sit down for three days and write a book and there was nothing she could do about it. And of course, um, she began to earn money as well. And she yeah. liked money, but we'll get onto all of that. Yeah. And so I think that she, she sometimes felt that writing brought her close to God. She described it in those sorts of spiritual terms. But um, for women in the 20th century, these things were not easy to talk about. Yeah. You've got to kind of probe her statements and think about what's the social context for that. Well... I guess what's still then of today's time is that fear of failure. That's also underwritten in it, where rather than fully committing, it's just, it's fancy. It's, it, you know, it's of no substance or subsequent, like, or subsequent. So I just wanted to know, in terms of her making that shift, what do you think was the biggest factor in her seeing it as a pursuit of of leisure into something that could be taken a little bit more seriously? I think it was the First World War. 
The, I think the First World War is this huge fault line in her life, as it was for so many other women in the yeah. 20th century. Uh, one of the things that interests me about Agatha Christie is the way she stands for a lot of, lot of other women of her class and time. And during the war, um, she, uh, um, her husband, she got married, we'll, we'll come to this, uh, <laughs> but he was, he was serving in France, so she volunteers as a nurse instead. And this time, so volunteering as a nurse in Torquay Hospital, mm -hmm. which was a field hospital, so people were coming over from northern France, injured, wounded, uh, and had to be um, dealt with. Volunteering ended up in her getting paid. Uh, she got a proper job in the hospital. Now, this was just unheard of for a nice young lady uh, like her, getting actual cash. That felt good. Yeah. And also being in the hospital, I think, you can see this in the relationship she forms with her colleagues there. It gave her feelings of camaraderie and achievement and competence and, and things that led her to think, well, perhaps I, perhaps I can be a professional working woman. This is something that's starting to happen to, to people like me. And it also, because the nurses were treated quite in a sort of snobbish, offhand, nasty way by the, 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 their superiors, the male doctors, it gave her a lasting dislike of authority. <laughs> Which is the most homicidal profession in Agatha Christie's work to come? Yes, it's doctors. <laughs> um, well, that fierce independence and, I mean, dare I say, aloofness is something that kind of grows into a much bigger tenet of who Agatha becomes as a mother, as a writer, as a person in the literary field. Um, let's talk then a little bit about, you know, we touched on First World War and how fundamentally influential that was on her and women of her age and generation. Archie, her yes. first husband quite handsome uh their courtship was quite fascinating and i'd say they played an interesting back and forth before they before they land on each other how did archie and agatha come to be and why did she why did she choose him when she had a fair few bachelors because he was really hot <laughs> it's uh he, he was he, he was he was incredibly good looking as you'll see if you look at pictures of him and he also had the um the glamour of being an airplane pilot and he had a motorbike and i think that she saw in him the possibility of a new kind of marriage that her friends and her were starting to want a companionate marriage sort of a new invention in the history of marriage that comes in in the 20th century where people will be a team they won't be uh, master and little pet they'll they'll sort of go on together side by side it didn't quite work out like that with him but i think that might have been part of the attraction i always feel guilty talking about him a bit though because mm -hmm. most of what we know about archie christie comes from agatha christie herself right, right? um and we never hear his side of the story and uh it's very easy to make him into a villain in the story of agatha christie because yeah. that's what she does herself later on so uh, a little a little moment of of doubt and possible respect for a man who was married to this really good storyteller who decided to make him into the villain of the story. Um, but again, within that context of the First World War, what is it that Agatha was witnessing alongside her other uh, VAD, VAD is the right thing, isn't it? Voluntary aid mm. detachments. Um, what was she seeing and what was, there's a particular thing that I touched upon earlier, but what... Did she get inspired with kind of oh, being in that, in that area? Yes. There's, there's other things about the hospital and being the VAD there which were really um, significant, I think. The first of those is that... And people, historians, have been looking much more into the experience of nurses within war than has been the case in the past when the attention's all been on the soldiers. Mm. But one of the jobs of the nurses, it is now argued, is for them to experience the horror of war, to see young men dirty, naked, wounded, to see things that young ladies aren't supposed to see. Mm. And to go back to their families at the end of the shift and not to tell. If Torquay respectable society knew what was going on inside that hospital, yeah. would the war stop? What would happen to morale? You know, you can see society might potentially collapse. So that seems to me important as a training in the wearing of masks, of being one thing and pretending to be another, mm. another step in the development of a writer who would be all about the masks that we wear and the way we suppress and hide our feelings. And then the other really obvious thing that she got in the hospital was knowledge of poisons. Yes. 
And you have a brilliant <laughs> list somewhere along the book about just the sheer quantity and just in, like inventiveness and just breadth of poisons. I mean, the fact that she was able to keep tabs on all of those. Says, well, she trained a as a... It, the, I'm always getting, I get this wrong. She wasn't an assistant pharmacist, but it was something of that nature. It has a very precise um, name. Okay. So she did study pharmacology, and her notebooks show her trying to practice all of the different um, mixes and ingredients and, and so on. So yeah. uh, it is something that she had an expert knowledge of, which she made, made good use of. <laughs> uh, that really paved the way Poirot kind of came about as a result of her First World War experiences. Um, can you try to quantify just the influence that Poirot has had and how... Did she, did she have any inkling as to kind of how that was, was going to take hold of the nation? She, uh, no, it, famously she got fed up with Poirot later on because <laughs> he was a bit full of himself, it is fair to say. <laughs> um, but there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot about Poirot's first appearance that seems to me to be rooted in war as mm. well. In the obvious sense, he's a Belgian refugee and she spoke about having been inspired by the sight of Belgian refugees around and about in Torquay too. Um, but I see an affinity between Pyro and what she had become, which is uh, part of this group of women who were in a man's world. Mm -hmm. uh, they were doing the job that um, they weren't expected to do. And um, Agatha and her friends in the magazine wrote a jokey hospital did I say the magazine? Uh, in the hospital, they created a hospital magazine to sort of keep their mm -hmm. spirits up. It became something that they did together to have fun. And the name of the group was The Queer Women. And uh, I think that there is something a bit queer about in, in that times language and also in modern times language. There's something a bit queer about Poirot himself. He hasn't been to public school. Mm -hmm. He has a funny accent. Nobody really knows where he's from. He appears to be intruding in um, other people's business. And like the, nurses, like the nurses appear to the doctors, he doesn't appear to be any good, you know. <laughs> his, he, can't, he can't walk properly. His shoes are too tight. There's all sorts of things that are a bit outsidery about him. And there's a clue to this even in his, in his name, Hercules. Hercules is a big, strong, classical hero, right? But Hercule is diminutive. It's, it's, it's camp. And uh, what she does so well is, is produce the... Um, the underrated detective figure, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a slight sidestep now. Obviously, the result of her marriage to Archie is the baby Rosalind. Mm -hmm. And that relationship, for those that do or don't know much about Agatha and her daughter, uh, yeah, is very, at times, very odd, different. But you write about it with a lot of empathy and understanding of both Agatha's desire to write and then be present when she can be. Just try and unpick for me how you think Agatha's... How, how you think Agatha was as a mother, with, without judgment or with judgment, if you prefer, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, how that kind of seeped into her works a, a wee bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so conscious that a lot of you here know a lot about Agatha Christie already. Um, and it's possible that some of you have sort of taken away the idea that she was a bad mother, a cold mother. It's something that often sort of appears in writing mm -hmm. about her life. Now, I don't personally think there's such a thing as a bad mother. <laughs> I think there are mothers who have good days and there are mothers who have bad days and do, do bad things. Uh, what Agatha Christie did is write about motherhood honestly. She, she didn't always show it as being saccharine sometimes she could you know she would show women who didn't like their children that sort of thing mm -hmm. and she only had she only in had her, her one child rosalind and uh, later on in her life she became a single parent bringing up rosalind so in some ways they were closer than was normal for their mm -hmm. class and time in um in other ways though uh, i do think it was very difficult for rosalind having such a powerful, effective, successful mother. And uh, later on, Agatha would go off on research trips and leave Agatha, uh, leave Rosalind at, at boarding school and sort of not give her the, the support, the space to develop it as her own person. And mm -hmm. this, this, this must be so hard for any person who's in the family of a writer of fiction. 
she would use Rosalind as copy. Mm. So as Rosalind gets older, oh, I see guilty faces in the audience. <laughs> I see guilty faces. Uh, people do this even if they don't like to admit it. Yeah. Um, later on, Rosalind said, "Look, please don't put me in any of your book, any more of your in any more of your books." And uh, because Agatha Christie's success became so gigantic, it became such a juggernaut. Her daughter actually sort of ended up working in the family business. There, there would be there would be no escape. Mm. Yet, uh, having said all of that, what a mother to have. Yeah, <laughs> it's not bad. Um, and naturally, Rosalind grows up a wee bit, and then the dissolution of Archie and Agatha's marriage kind of takes hold, which brings us very aptly to this space. And I, 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 yeah, and this is the Old Swan Hotel, which was formerly the Hydropathic Hotel. And this is where Agatha eventually went for 11, 11 days. Sometimes people say 10, but it is 11 days, where she went missing and ended up right here, which is brilliant for those that don't know. Um, let's just kind of backtrack a bit, though. You, it's the first time I've understood this version of events, I've, because I've not read heavily around Agatha up until I've read this biography. And so the actual experiences that Agatha, Agatha goes through up, leading up to those miss, miss, missing days. Can you just talk to me about genuinely what you think happened and how you sourced that information? Certainly. We have come to the notorious year in year 1926, which is this kind of key hinge in Agatha's life. It had all been, it had all been going pretty well until this point. Yeah. She was married, she had a child, um, and she was a really successful author. In 1926, she published... The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which frequently tops polls for the greatest detective story ever written, doesn't it? It's an absolute mm -hmm. masterpiece. But in 1926, things also started to go wrong for her. She felt the pressure to follow up on that, mm -hmm. as anybody would. Um, she was paying the mortgage on their big new house. She was the bread... She, no, she wasn't the breadwinner, but she was a significant financial contributor to the relationship. And her mother died. Mm. And under all of this, Agatha began to experience symptoms that I think today might get you a diagnosis of depression from your doctor. So she talks about insomnia, tearfulness, forgetfulness, uh, feeling unable to cope with life. So things weren't going well for mm. her. And then in 1926, she heard that her husband had found another woman mm -hmm. and wanted to leave her. And uh, she was a... Uh, a young woman, ten, 10 years younger as well. Nancy, Nancy Neal was her name. So all of these things came to a head for Agatha on the 3rd of December, 1926, yeah. which is the night that she uh, left Rosalind in bed and went driving out in her little car and drove to the edge of a chalk pit in the Surrey Downs. They were living in the south of England then. And then the next morning, her little car was found over the edge of the chalk pit... And she wasn't there. She disappeared. 11 days later, she was discovered living in this hotel under a false name. And there had been a national woman hunt for her in the meantime. Now, uh, the, the stories that were told at the time, and in fact, after the time, were that she'd staged this. She'd done it to get publicity for her books or to frame her cheating rat of a husband with having murdered her. And... That second one in particular is a great story, isn't it? Yeah. We can all see the attraction of that. And the way that she had disappeared, the car, the cliff, her driving license in the car, that all seemed very much like a detective story too. And so often in books about Agatha Christie, you'll read of this as a mystery, a mystery to be solved, like it is crime fiction. But it isn't. It isn't. It's a real person we're talking about here. And another thing you'll often read is that she never spoke about it again for the rest of her life. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. Because in 1928, she gave a really long interview explaining what had happened. And this is the first time that she'd spoken about it. And she gave the interview to the Daily Mail. So she told thousands of readers of the Daily Mail her side of the story. The thing is, though, they didn't want to hear it because it wasn't the story about the cheating husband and the framing and everything right it was a story that was difficult to hear it was a story that was about 
mental distress and being mentally unwell. Mm. Now, why, why did she not speak until this particular point? Well, it was for a heartbreaking reason. It's because the disappearance had caused such bad press for her. There'd been so much outcry that in 1928, when her divorce was coming to court, there was the real possibility that she might lose custody of Rosalind. So I think that she gives this interview in 1928 to tell the judge not to listen to what he's read in the papers, but to hear the story from her point of view. So in this interview, she says that on that night, she had been experiencing suicidal thoughts and that the best and the safest thing that she could do for her daughter was to leave her at home and to get away. And she... I've, I've spoken a lot to um, psychiatrists today who mm. would say that if this happened today, we would call the condition a fugue state. It's a, a mental condition that's all about distancing yourself from, from, from trauma, all these bad things that have been happening to her in her personal life. And you take on the character of a different person, mm. this made-up character that she invented for herself, for self-protection. And in a fugue state, you can do quite normal things, like take a train to Harrogate, which she did. And Harrogate was a good choice because it was a centre of medical excellence and health in 1926. And it seems to me that on some level she needed time away from her personal life, mm -hmm. space, reflection. Um, and then you can imagine how it all played out. People didn't know where she were. They became worried. It became a news story. And she was also a victim of the 1920s newspaper business, which was really interested in stories about women. You know, women had got the vote, some of them. Women had worked in World War I. Uh, women were, were part of public culture yeah. much more. So they loved Agatha Christie. We've got this young, professional, working mother here. Isn't she great? Until in 1926, oh, no, she's gone too far. We don't like this anymore. She's acted in an unwomanly, unmotherly, unwifely way. So they turned against her. So from 1926 onwards, Agatha Christie kind of retreats into privacy. Yeah. She, she doesn't court publicity anymore after that. She becomes very reticent about giving interviews. And I think my reading of this is because of the shame, the terrible shame of having been so publicly ill in 1926. Yeah. Uh, it's so interesting, because I guess the ownership of that narrative up until very recently then has been led and continued by the way it's been told in the media. But as we spoke about before, it's interesting that there is still some debate over what happened in those 11 days, but more importantly, that those that are open and read on your, your telling of the situation of a fugue state are women, those interpreters are women. So it's interesting that there's been this continual male gaze over her story and her life and how she chose to stay quite proper and relatively self-restrained when it came to telling her side of events. And I just wanted to know, um, why, why even now, when we are trying to readdress the balance in every shape and form, why is it still not readily agreed or readily acknowledged that that is what has happened, that is what has happened to her? Well, can we ever really know? What, what I've told you is an interpretation. I've taken my lead from what she said mm. under conditions where telling the truth was really important, yeah. potential loss of custody of her daughter. And uh, it's really fun to write about the disappearance because get, people get caught up in the whole detective story aspect yeah. of it, which is what papers like The Sketch were really leaning into themselves. And um, I'm really struck by something I read in the media just, just recently with the yeah. actress Sharon Stone, mm. who was in a film called Basic, Basic Instinct. Yeah. And in that film, there's a very notorious scene, which I'm not going to describe. Or do. Go Google it. <laughs> no, don't Google it. You'll get a terrible, you know, don't Google it. Anyway, um, she had been in a, a custody battle and she said, I think I lost my daughter because of that scene because of the story that was attached to who I must be as a result of that moment in my life. Mm. Uh, and I thought, hmm, heard that before. Mm. That frustration and that injustice, whatever you want to call it, so that, and that betrayal of it, like that Archie did undertake, all of that wrapped up, 
that then leads on to a new chapter in Agatha's writing, or a side hustle, let's say, uh, in the form of a pseudonym. Can we talk a bit about Mary and what that represented mm. in Agatha's journey? Mm. Once Agatha was discovered at the hotel and was forced to confront reality and sort of re-embrace who she actually was, in Fugue State, this is the worst part of it, I'm told, when you you realise that the holiday's over, you're back to where you were beforehand. Mm. And she was treated by a psychiatrist. There's some evidence for that in Harley Street. And recently it's been worked out who that probably was. And it was a chap called uh, William Brown. He seems the most likely candidate because he was um, the best-known person in Harley Street at the time for having dealt with people with um, shell shock and what they called memory, loss of memory, loss of memory. Agatha's state was often sort of described as a shorthand, as, as memory loss, which isn't an accurate depiction of mm. what it was. Anyway, this guy, William Brown, had treated lots of people in, um, in war medicine, and that's where psychiatry had really progressed a lot in the 1920s. It's worth saying that part of Agatha Christie's um, bad press resulted from the fact that she in the popular terms, had lost her memory. That's what had happened to shell-shocked soldiers. Shell-shocked soldiers are shirkers, right? Mm. So there was this narrative of cowardice and deception attached to her experience as well. Now, what William Brown did to uh, help people who'd suffered fugue state was uh, he used hypnosis on them, and he also used what today we describe as a talking therapy. He just spent hours talking to that person about the history of their life, their relationships, right from the very beginning, taking them through uh, a sort of a, um, a, a, fe a therapy as, mm. as, as is now you know, a, a common part of our society. And as a result of this, now this is a leap that I'm making, but it seems to be a plausible make leap. He said, look, you're a writer, write it all down, why don't you? And that became a series of novels which she published under a pseudonym, Mary Westmacott. And the first of them is called Unfinished Portrait, and it's a fictionalised version of a woman in exactly the same situation who feels an urge to take her life, and uh, if she falls into a ditch full of water rather than driving to the edge of a cliff, and you can see it sort of all laid bare. And Agatha went on writing these uh, novels under this sort of veil of privacy that her pseudonym gave her, and... Mm, they, they've sort of traditionally been described as um, romance mm. fiction. Today, today, I think we call them literary fiction. They, they aspire to be um, something quite penetrating about human nature. And um, uh, some of them are only worth reading if you're really interested in Agatha Christie. But some of them, like A Daughter's a Daughter, Absent in the Spring, I think they're really enjoyable and they're really great. And if even if you haven't read them and think that they're up your street, give them, give them a go. Absent in the, in the Spring, it's kind of... I won't tell you what it's about in case that spoils it, but it's a real sort of reviewer piece of writing. Can we then uh, just have a think about the power of a name? Because some of our wonderful authors here today have chosen pseudonyms. And why did she choose Mary Westmacott as the name, first of all, but also the potency of the Agatha Christie name? Just try and explain how that has carried so much weight within it. Yes, um, do you know that it's, um, there's a kind of a movement to call female authors by their, their surname, right? Because it dignifies them. We don't call Jane Austen Jane, we call her Austen in order to give her a sort of seriousness. But also this doesn't work because <laughs> women don't own their surnames in the way that, <laughs> yeah. that men are able to do. So ironically, Agatha Christie gets stuck with this surname of the guy that she divorced but it had commercial weight to it then, so she felt she couldn't uh, cast it off completely. She chose Mary Westmacott because it referred to different names that had been in her family. And in fact, when she'd first gone to the publisher, just after the war when she mm -hmm. got her deal, she had said to him, look, I, I assume I'm going to have to take a, a man's name, that's what women do. But the publisher, being a canny guy, he could see that the, the so-called golden age was just unfolding, which would be dominated by all of these female crime writers. Mm. And he said, no, no, it, it is time for women to step forward as, um, as, as women. So Agatha Christie is the way that we should go. Um, but after she divorced Archie, she, um, she, she remarried. Mm -hmm. And uh, later on in life, she would lurk around as um, Mrs. Max Mallowan, which was the name of her second 
husband. Her young, fun husband. Yeah, she, yes. yeah, she had a young, fun another. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a fabulous little anecdote she told in a story in an interview she gave for her 70th birthday. And I think this reveals a lot about her. She was traveling on a train, and this is post-disappearance, doesn't want any attention anymore. She's traveling on a train, looking like a, um, a respectable matronly lady. And two other women were sitting opposite her, and each of them had an Agatha Christie paperback on their knee. And they started talking about what was then the world's best-known author. And one of them said to the other, oh, yes, I've heard that Agatha Christie drinks like a fish. <laughs> And as we know, she didn't drink like a fish. She drank cream. And also, <laughs> also, she wasn't Agatha Christie. She was Mrs. Max Mallow, and that's how she liked to go through life, downplaying her, her public persona. And of course, the ladies had Agatha Christie paperbacks on their knee on the train, because everybody did. <laughs> uh, before we hand over to the lovely audience, because I know there's probably loads of questions that they want to ask you, let's just touch on Max and how that second chapter of life peppered with World War II that was just starting to erupt. Um, where does Agatha find herself and um, where does she draw upon in those years, you know, between Syria, Iraq? Mm. Um, you know, she really takes on a new pursuit of archaeology, but also bankrolling to an extent, Max's pursuit of archaeology. Um, so just paint us a picture, for, if you can, about that, that yeah. time in her life. When Archie got remarried, Agatha, I've got to get out of here. I don't want to be in the country. So she took rather an adventurous solo trip to um, Iraq to visit an archaeological dig. She had an interest in, in archaeology. She wanted to see the city of Ur that was being excavated then. We're just after Tutankhamun. It was mm. like, it was going to be the, it's going to be the next Tutankhamun. You must come and see it. And there she met a young archaeological assistant called Max Mallowan, who would become her life partner. Um, how long were they married? 1930 to 1976. 40, a really long... 40 A good long time. And he appealed, I think, yeah. because he was able to offer more hope of this companionate marriage that I was talking about mm. earlier. Mm. By this time, she was rich, she was famous slash notorious, she was professionally successful. Who, what man would live with that? Mm. It turns out a man who was 15 years, 14 years younger, uh, and a man who, he had no interest in... Um, her kind of success. Yeah. He was really geeky. He was into archaeology. He wanted to be a famous archaeologist. That's what he was interested in. And she respected that. Mm. And so they were each able to respect their intellectual pursuits mm. in a way it ironed out the imbalance between them. There's no doubt about it, though. They were an odd couple. This was really countercultural. Yeah. And they would do things like lie about their ages to make the gap seem smaller. <laughs> and... Um, in due course, one of the reasons she went on writing and earning money was because she got really into archaeology too, and she wanted to enable his career. So this is, this is, this is difficult stuff to talk about even today, isn't yeah. it? A woman paying her husband to be her husband. But that is kind of what happened. Yeah. And when people think about Agatha Christie and archaeology, they think of her you know, photographing the finds, doing a bit of hands-on work, cleaning stuff, which she did. Yeah. And that's how she talked about her interest in archaeology. But I think, much more fundamentally than that, she was paying for everybody to be there on the dig in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we hand over, there's a couple more questions I feel like we should ask. Miss Marple, I know this is moving more into her kind of later phase of writing. Miss Marple is a fantastic female detective, and you've talked at length about it in the book, but what does her gender lend her? What does her age lend her? How does her character make her a little bit different to the detectives we've seen previously within um, crime fiction writing in Agatha's Day? Well, the reason I'm fond of Miss Marple is because I think that she was... Agatha Christie's most treasured character because mm -hmm. in some ways she's an avatar for Agatha Christie herself. Someone who's got the brain the size of the planet mm -hmm. but who can't present that to the world because of the cost that that would involve. So uh, she's, she has something of Poirot's qualities in that nobody sees her coming uh, but she also has his ability to sort everything out from yeah. sort of sort of left field 
really. Um, I'm sure some of you here are fans of murder at the vicarage. And um, this is the first novel where Miss Marple appears in book-length form. And if you think about what that must have been like to its first readers in 1930, it's extraordinary, because they wouldn't even have known that Miss Marple was going to be the detective. Today, when we're reading it, Miss Marple appears, and you think, oh, yeah, here she is, it's all going to be fine. But to the first readers, she was just a little annoying old lady. And they would have had this thrill of suddenly discovering who she was and what she was capable of. I love that book. And not least because it's got a wedding present to Max in it, which is that the distinguished archaeologist turns out to be a jewel thief. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On that note, I'd love to hand out uh, to our wonderful audience uh, if you've got a couple of burning questions, anything we've covered and more. Uh, If we could just go over there, the man in brown. Lucy, you mentioned in the world of Agatha Christie that the murder, the murderer is sometimes one of us. Um, but, but it's very rarely one of them, and, and I mean that in sense of it's within a class system. It's not, as the kind of 20th century unfolded, democratisation and so on. How, how do you think Christie deals with the working class in the, kind of, in the context of her work? particularly given that that very middle-class, upper-class focus. Yes, it's interesting. One of the things that's sort of held against Agatha Christie today are the set of uh, attitudes that go with the... so I, I always call it the so-called golden age of crime because it's golden, apart from the classism and the racism <laughs> and the anti-Semitism and all the rest of it. Um, but... People talk about, you know, the question, what's her attitude to class, is is kind of hard to answer because she was writing for such a long darn time. She she was writing from 1920 to 1976. And over the course of all of these books, what you see is an evolution. So one of the things that's interesting about her work to me is the window it offers us into the mental world of her readers, people like her, people in uh, Europe and America with the time, the leisure, the money to buy and read detective stories. Um, So people often try and score her, you know, Mm. terrible, uh, bad score for anti-Semitism, better score for sympathetic depiction of same-sex couples, for example. This is incredibly crude and a very blunt way of talking about this. Um, But the one thing that she's... uh, (laughs) She's, um, she, she's sometimes guilty of being classist, but other times absolutely not. And I think amongst other Golden Age writers, she's very sensitive, actually. She sometimes gets interested in the lives of working class people. And it's true that she really dislikes a toff. She's very down on toffs. Yeah. Um, her attitude to, for example, Iraqi people. You see that slowly evolving as, as time goes on. Yeah but there's no getting away from it. That was the world in which she lived and she couldn't disassociate herself from it. She could just bend the rules of it a bit. Uh, any other questions? Uh, yeah, can we get the guy over there with the glasses? Uh, thank you very much, Lucy. Um, I'd wonder if you had any more information about the psychiatric treatment that Agatha Christie had, yeah, because talking yeah. therapy was in its infancy in those yeah. days, and some of the alternatives were, frankly, horrific, yeah. uh, and would probably have damaged her future writing. And, and I wondered, did she have any other therapies, or was, was that uh, a psychiatrist she saw a, a visionary as far as um, psychiatric treatment at the time was concerned? I just wish we knew more about this, but we don't, because it wasn't something she was ever going to be comfortable talking about, uh, because partly because of the, the, the shaming that she'd experienced in 1926, and partly because she was quite a private person, felt no desire or need to um, talk about her inner life. In 1926, the act of going to... Harley Street for the psychiatric treatment had two meanings. Firstly, it meant you had money and her sister had married a very wealthy man and sort of enabled all of this to happen. It cost lots of money to go to Harley Street. Secondly, it was a slightly left thing field thing to do because, as you say, this was a science that was in its infancy 
I mean, um, Freud was hotly debated. Not, not everybody agreed with um, the way that this particular um, branch of science was, was going to go. And we don't know for a fact that she saw William Brown. It seems likely that she did, though, because he'd been in the media such a lot about his um, ability to bring back people's memories. Um, he had written a book about how, how good he was at doing it, and he'd been giving all these lectures about it, and there'd been reports of these lectures kind of in the same part of the press and at the same time that she was appearing in the press, firstly for her achievements and then for her, for her disappearance. So you can actually read his whole book which talks about the different things that, that he tried and the things that he used. But he, was, um, he wasn't into using electric shocks or anything, anything like that. And um, he talks about hypnosis as something that he liked to do because he felt it just speeded up the talking therapy. If you had time, you did the talking therapy. If you didn't have time, you tried hypnosis. Um, but the thing is, because so many people have been keen to deny that Agatha Christie was really ill in 1926, if you go with the argument that she was a bad person, a self-publicist, trying to fame the cheating husband for his murder or whatever, and a lot of people are in that camp, I think you really miss out the interest and the enjoyment of being able to see the influence of her psychiatric treatment in her later writing. So you can argue that there's a morphing in the way that Poirot works. Earlier, Poirot is really interested in, you know, clues, bits of paper, footsteps, ash, that sort of thing. Though he's never into that kind of clue as much as his predecessors had been. But later on, he talks about the secrets of the heart and motive, and in the case of the five little pigs, you know, he can't do the physical clues because it all happened years ago in the past. So he starts acting more like a, a forensic psychiatrist than was the case before 1926, I think. But this is, this is stuff that's not really clear to me. It's, it's, it's an, I'd like to read an article about it by someone who's more familiar with 1920s psychiatric techniques because mm. that's a, a really fruitful way of reading her work, I think. That's all we have to decipher today. Thank you, Lucy. And thank you to our sponsors, Hodder and Stoughton, as well. Uh, that's the end of it. You can catch Lucy for signings in the reading tent by your own copy. Uh, but thank you so much. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.